American soldiers, beware. The International Criminal Court may be coming after you for doing the right thing in defending America. Yesterday, they decided to go after Israel, a fellow democracy, which operates under the rule of law. Israel today, the United States tomorrow. You'll see why this is the death knell for the International Criminal Court. Some of you may have heard of the International Criminal Court that sits in The Hague, but there may be some of my viewers and listeners for whom this is something new. Uh, the United States is not a party to the International Criminal Court, so it hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the American uh, press. But uh, yesterday, it made a decision that may essentially end its credibility and destroy it as a court with any impact on international law. Just first a bit of history. In 2002, uh, the nations of the world uh, met in Rome, and a uh, hundred and something of them signed on to what was called the Rome Treaty. And the Rome Treaty created an international criminal court with a very distinguished uh, prosecutor, somebody who was well-regarded all over the world. And the the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court was quite limited. It was a court designed to prevent genocides. Uh, we had been through, obviously, the Holocaust, the Armenian genocide, uh, more recently, the Rwandan genocide, genocides in other parts of the world. And the international community got together and said, enough's enough. We ought to have a court located in The Hague, a neutral objective court of very limited jurisdiction, and limited in, in several ways. Number one, it would focus on genocide. It would focus on massive, undisputed crimes against humanity where one country uh, kills people based on their ethnicity or race or anything of the kind. Genocide, war crimes, the most, the most horrible kinds of things imaginable, like, again, the Holocaust, the Armenian Genocide, and others like that. So that would be one limit on its jurisdiction. The other limit would be a strange word, and I have to use it and then explain it. It's called complementarity. Grows out of the word complement. Um, not complement in the sense of praise, but one thing complements another. So the jurisdiction of the court was complementary in the sense that it was only supposed to operate against countries that did not have viable legal systems. If a country like the United States has a viable legal system where you can challenge things, the alleged victims of international law violations could bring the case to American courts, and they have. Uh, repeatedly, the Vietnam War was challenged in court. I know I was part of that uh, challenge. Other American uh, activities have been challenged in our own domestic courts, and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but we have a viable court system that permits that. And so the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court excluded, excluded any country that has a viable legal system capable and willing to deal with these allegations of genocide, war crimes, and other kinds of things. So, so far we have two limitations, um, obviously, that we've talked about, uh, complementarity, and uh, you have to be a signatory of the treaty. You have to be a person who signed the treaty. The United States refused to sign the treaty. The United States didn't trust an international elitist court sitting in The Hague to sit in judgment on our generals, on our commander-in-chief, 
who was the president of the United States, on our soldiers and, and put them in jail. And there was a revolt in Congress. And in fact, the statute that was proposed was called Invade the Hague Statute. Uh, the reason was that one of the members of Congress said, if they ever try to arrest an American soldier for doing his or her job and doing it well, we would invade the Hague and free him from, uh, from prison. So there was strong opposition to the International Criminal Court from the very beginning in the United States. And the United States didn't sign on, um, nor did Israel, um, nor did Russia, nor did China. And a number of other countries didn't sign on, but a hundred and some countries did sign on. And so there are all these limitations. Uh, it's also limited to states. The only groups that can sign on are states. Uh, for example, ISIS, which claims to have a caliphate, uh, could not sign the treaty because it's not a state. Um, states that aren't recognized, uh, for example, the Kurds, who claim they have independence, they could not sign on and become uh, treaty members. So those are all the limitations. Well, yesterday, the prosecutor of the International Court violated every single one of those limitations, every single one of them, by opening up an investigation of Israel. Uh, a democracy, a non-signatory to the treaty, not a member of the International Criminal Court, a country with one of the best legal systems in the world. The Supreme Court of Israel is one of the most highly regarded Supreme Courts. Independent rules against the Israeli government repeatedly, particularly when it comes to allegations of violations of the rules of war, etc. Also, what Israel was accused of doing was defending itself against terrorism. And who do you think brought the complaint? A group of terrorists brought the complaint to the International Criminal Court, asking them to investigate Hamas and Israel, putting them on an equal plane. The group of terrorists that invoked the jurisdiction of the court, obviously, were not a country. They claim to be a country. They call themselves Palestine. Um, it's not even clear what Palestine's supposed to include. Does it include Gaza, the Gaza Strip? Does it include Hamas? Um, um, how is the Palestinian Authority uh, different than the Kurds or the people who uh, are seeking independence for the uh, other parts of the world, the you know, there are so many groups seeking independence that claim the status of being a separate nation. But none of them are because they haven't, don't have the attributes of nationhood. The Palestinians, for example, what are their borders? Nobody knows. They don't have declared borders. We don't even know whether the Palestinian state as declared by the Palestinian Authority, not recognized by the United States, not recognized by many of the countries of the world, we don't even know whether it includes the Gaza Strip, whether the Gaza Strip is within the jurisdiction of the Palestinian state. They are totally separate. They don't recognize the Palestinian Authority as their government. They have a Hamas-controlled government, never had an election, of course, and no, have no judicial system, no legal system. They just kill people if they think they're their enemies, they throw them off the roof, they hang them, they strangle them, they cut their heads off, they do whatever they do. They're not a state. And so 
not surprisingly, the United States government has strongly opposed this. I read the headline, U.S. backs Israel against ICC prosecutor, says court has no jurisdiction. The State Department said the United States firmly, it's not a word that's used so often by the State Department, firmly opposes and is deeply, deeply disappointed in this decision. It continues, the ICC has no jurisdiction over this matter. Israel is not a party to the ICC and has not consented to the court's jurisdiction, and we have serious concerns about the ICC's attempt to exercise its jurisdiction over Israeli personnel. Well, what are those concerns? The concerns obviously apply not only because Israel is a strong ally, a democracy, a country with a viable legal system, but because if they're going to prosecute Israelis, who's next? American soldiers, obviously. Obviously, as soon as this thing is underway, we're going to see groups claiming that the United States has violated the rules of international law, and uh, the complaint won't necessarily be brought by a recognized state. It will be brought by ISIS, claiming they're a caliphate. It could be brought by Hamas, by Hezbollah, um, uh, or by countries that are not signatories to the treaty at all. And so today Israel, tomorrow the United States, explains why the United States is so strongly opposed uh, to this. And, and, and the idea of the International Criminal Court putting Israel and Hamas on a kind of moral equivalency? Let's just understand the situation. Israel gave up any control over the Gaza Strip in 2005. Um, it took out not only every one of its soldiers, but every one of its settlers. Not a single Israeli was in the Gaza Strip when this occurred over great protests. My own uncle refused to watch me get an honorary degree at Bar Ilan University in Israel because the degree was being given to me by then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, who was the one who evacuated the Gaza Strip, who ended Israel's occupation over the Gaza Strip. Remember, the Gaza Strip was occupied first by Egypt, then after the 67 war, it was occupied by Israel. It has never been an independent uh, area. But there was a lot of opposition to it in Israel, but Israel gave up control. At that point, the Gaza Strip could have become Singapore on the Mediterranean. Israel gave it uh, farm equipment, hothouses, uh, agricultural development material, but instead they threw out the Palestinian Authority, um, appointed or elected, if they call it an election, Hamas became a terrorist state, and put the money they got into building rockets, attacking Israeli schools, school buses, hospitals, civilian targets, all in violation of international law. And then they began to build terror tunnels, tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip. One of them that I was in, went to, I was the first American to be allowed into the tunnel shortly after it was discovered. I wrote a book about it called Terror Tunnels. But the exit to the tunnel in Israel was just yards away from an Israeli nursery. And the obvious target of this terror tunnel was to kill, kidnap, murder, destroy, terrorize Israeli children, Israeli civilians. Fortunately, the tunnel was discovered and um, 
it was neutralized. Uh, a previous tunnel resulted in the kidnapping of uh, an Israeli soldier and who was held for a ransom and finally exchanged after a, a long uh, period of, of time. But Hamas specializes in terrorism, attacks against civilians. Yes, they do commit war crimes. Yes, they should be the subject of some kind of uh, prosecution. But to compare them to Israel, what did Israel do? It had to go into the Gaza Strip to destroy the terror tunnels, to find the rocket sources, and to defend its own civilians against enemy attacks, just like the United States would do, just like France would do, just like Holland would do, just like any country would do. Can you imagine any country allowing rockets to be targeting its children without making efforts to prevent it? Israel has the best record of any country in the world of minimizing civilian casualties. Don't believe me on that. Believe Richard Kemp, uh, the former head of British forces in Afghanistan, who did a study and went and looked at the situation and said no country has ever done more to prevent civilian casualties than Israel. And yet the International Criminal Court prosecutor equates Hamas with Israel, equates a democracy with a legal system, with an army which is under the direction of the Judge Advocate Court in Israel, the army must, must abide by the rules of the Judge Advocate Court, which is the legal group within Israel. In the United States, we have a Judge Advocate Court too, but the opinions of the Judge Advocate are only advisory on the United States Army. In Israel, they're mandatory, and it led to a joke when Israel ordered airplanes from um, the United States, it said we need it with three cockpits, one for the pilot, one for the navigator, and one for the lawyer uh, from the Judge Advocate Corps who will tell the navigator and the pilot what appropriate targets are and what are inappropriate targets. That's how serious Israel is about complying with the rule of law. No country in history faced with threats comparable to those faced by Israel has ever had a better record of human rights a better record of compliance with the rule of law, a better judicial system able and willing to make the country adhere to the rule of law, and more concern for protecting the live, lives of enemy civilians. And yet that's the one country the International Criminal Court has gone after. Have they gone after Syria? Uh-uh. No, there's no investigation of Syria. One can even use the word genocide in describing what Assad has done to its own civilians using chemical weapons and other kinds of weapons on its own civilians. Have we seen any interest in Iran, um, which murders gays and, and dissidents and members of groups that oppose it uh, in cold blood? No, no concern about that. Have we seen concerns about uh, Russia uh, in the Ukraine or in Chechnya? <clears throat> no. Have we seen concerns about China putting Muslims in camps? No. Only Israel. And um, Prime Minister Netanyahu used strong words describing the focus solely on Israel, the nation state of the Jewish people, as anti-Semitic. You don't have to go that far to say it's simply not applying a single standard. And it's violating the statute on which the treaty on which the International Criminals Court is based. It's a tragedy because the International C Criminal Court had promise. Um, I wrote an article about it when it was first established saying, please, the United States and Israel, 
keep an open mind. Let's see how it operates. The first prosecutor was wonderful uh, and picked his targets neutrally and objectively and carefully and had real uh, success. Let's keep an open mind. Let's let's watch. Maybe in 10 years, in 20 years, we're now approaching the 20th anniversary of the International Criminal Court. Maybe in 20 years, the United States, Israel and other countries have enough trust in it so that they could join. It would be a good thing. Not after yesterday. After yesterday, the United States will never join the International Criminal Court, ever. They will always be a staunch opponent of its uh, claiming jurisdiction over countries that are non-signatories. Israel will not join. Israel, by the way, was willing to join initially. They were willing to submit to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court because they do no wrong when it comes to violating the rules of international uh, law. But uh, they didn't want to undercut the United States, a great ally, and so they stayed out, and they said they'd stay out as long as the United States stayed out, and if the United States went in, maybe they'd go in as well. That's no longer a viable option. No Israeli government, no American government will ever join the International Criminal Court. I think the International Criminal Court is now dead. It's um, uh, on its last gasps. Um, nobody is going to trust it. Uh, it is clearly not any longer a court. Its prosecutor is completely biased and one-sided, and um, it has lost all its credibility. Oh, there are people on the left. There are international scholars that will say it was the right decision. There are even going to be some extremists within Israel uh, who will say, oh, I'm glad. It's good. Maybe we, they should arrest some Israelis. And by the way, the International Criminal Court has power. They, they have a prison. They put people in prison and... They use Interpol to arrest people so that, for example, if an Israeli general were to be indicted, uh, he would not be extradited, extradited from Israel. Obviously, Israel doesn't recognize the court or from the United States. But if he or she traveled to France uh, or Holland or anywhere else, they might very well extradite them and put them in prison. And then what happens? Uh, does Israel simply sit back and accept its own soldiers who have done nothing wrong being put in prison by an international court that they don't even recognize? And what are the implications of this for other international organizations? Look, we belong to the United Nations. We didn't belong to the League of Nations. We belong to the United Nations. But what if there are other organizations that we don't belong to? Do they have jurisdiction over us? We're a sovereign country. We determine whether we are going to join organizations, whether they be climate organizations or health organizations or legal organizations or anti-nuclear organizations, whatever they are. We have a right to join them, but we have a right not to join them. And if we don't join them, they have no jurisdiction over us. We're a sovereign nation. The International Criminal Court simply has no jurisdiction over non-signatories. And they certainly have no right to proclaim... Palestine without borders, without any attributes of statehood, they have no right, no power to proclaim Palestine a state. They have no power to say they have jurisdiction over a terrorist enclave called Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip. So yesterday was a very bad day for international law. It was a very bad day for efforts to prevent a genocide. It was a very bad day for a due process. It was a bad day for the United States. It was a bad day for Israel, but you have not heard the end of it. 
Israel will fight this. The United States will be on Israel's side. This will reunite the United States and Israel. And by the way, there are other countries in the world, some of whom are signatories to the International Criminal Court, who are also opposed to the International Criminal Court stretching its jurisdiction to claim that it has the power over countries that don't sign and countries that have legal systems and countries that don't violate international law. So stay tuned. We will follow this case. Um, I'm a lawyer. I have been in the International Criminal Court. I've argued cases in The Hague. I have met with the prosecutors of the International Criminal Court. I was invited to give a lecture to the prosecutors at the International Criminal Court at a time when I thought it still had hope. I have completely and totally given up any hope that the International Criminal Court can now be a success. The prosecutor who made this terrible decision yesterday is on her way out. She's leaving in three months, four months, and she has announced that she's not going to make controversial decisions and leave it to her successor. But not this one. She's going to get Israel before she leaves, and she's going to leave the new prosecutor with Israel being investigated and prosecuted. And even though he might not have made that decision, and I suspect he wouldn't have made that decision, she has imposed that decision on him as a lame duck in the last months of her legacy. Well, let me tell you what her legacy is going to be. Her legacy is going to be a self-inflicted fatal wound on the International Criminal Court. Now, I know this is not a subject that all of you, my listeners and viewers, might be interested in from a, you know, priority point of view, but just remember, this involves not only Israel, it involves the United States. I guarantee you that if this investigation and prosecution goes forward, we will see complaints filed in the International Criminal Court against our brave men and women in uniform who comply with the rule of law. And if they don't comply with the rule of law, get prosecuted by American courts. There are American soldiers in prison. Yes, some of them were pardoned. Some of them were commuted. But there are some in prison if they've committed serious crimes. We have the ability, the capability, the willingness to prosecute our own if they violate the rules of law. And that's the way it should be with a sovereign nation. So stay tuned. I would like to hear your views on this, legal, moral, political. Tell me what you think of the International Criminal Court expanding its jurisdiction to a non-member state and giving status to a non-state to allow prosecutions to be brought against a country, members of a country, that have a valid legal system. I think it's a disaster. I think it's an abomination to the law. And I think it will mark the end of the International Criminal Court, which is unfortunately a tragedy because it could have been a good court. It could have done a good job in preventing genocide, but it has given up its objectivity and its neutrality. So let's hear from you on the International Criminal Court or on any other subject that we've spoken about on this show. Or call me and tell me about subjects we haven't spoken about. I got one today saying, why don't you deal with the fact that Kamala uh, Harris is not really qualified to be vice president or president because she was born in the United States to parents who weren't U.S. Uh, citizens. And I said, no, I'm not going to deal with that issue unless people call in and ask about it, because it's clear that she was born in the United States to non-diplomatic parents, and that makes her a natural-born uh, citizen. But I'll take your calls on any subject, on any issue, but let's get some calls also on the International Criminal Court and what you think 
of its decision to prosecute Israelis. Our first phone call today is about race and gender. Mr. Dershowitz, I have long disagreed with you, but I don't think I'm that far away from you in age. And the video I saw today, March 3rd, you hit the nail right square on the head. I thank you, sir. I thoroughly enjoyed your commentary and your analysis of the difficulties. My name is Roger Wiley, and I live in the Missouri Ozark foothills, right up against the Arkansas state line. I thank you, sir, for what you had to say. Well, thank you. Uh, one of my favorite TV shows is Ozark. I've been watching it, and I'm hoping for a new season. Um, and I know it was up for some uh, Golden Globe uh, awards. Uh, look, I appreciate uh, your disagreement with me, and I appreciate your support for what I'm saying. I think a lot of people uh, who have disagreed with me in the past uh, agree with me now. A lot of people who have agreed with me in the past disagree with me now. And the interesting thing is I haven't changed. The world has changed. I haven't changed. My views are the same. I Recently, somebody sent me uh, the text of a debate that I had in high school. And um, I was a debater, the captain of the debating team at my yeshiva high school. And uh, this uh, kid who was a friend of mine happened to have a copy of my debate. And he, he sent it to me. And, you know, I was 14 years old. And I don't think I've changed very much in the last, uh, what, 60-something uh, years, uh, almost 70 years. So I've been consistent, uh, but the people who uh, admire me or detest me have changed over time. Hey, that's the nature of a changing world. I enjoy your show. I admire the fact you're a man of principle, even though I disagree with you politically. But my question is, can the Congress dictate to the states how they run elections in regards to such items as requiring voter ID, ballot harvesting, extensive early voting. Thank you. It's a great question. Of course, it's right before the Supreme Court now in one case, and it will be before the Supreme Court in many, many other cases, especially if H.R. 1 is uh, enacted. There are limits, obviously, uh, in presidential elections. The Constitution provides that it's the state legislatures that make decisions about voter qualification. But if there are efforts to disqualify voters, if there are efforts to make it more difficult to vote, the 13th, 14th, 15th, and other amendments to the Constitution have uh, federal uh, power uh, over the states. For example, uh, no state can deny a woman the right to vote or an 18-year-old the right to vote uh, or an African-American the right to vote. So there are limits. There's a balance that has to be struck, and it will depend on the nature of the congressional legislation. Some will be upheld. Some will not be upheld. Uh, good question. Stay tuned. There's no simple answer. Hi, Professor Dershowitz. This is Avi from New York. Um, just had a question with the trial of the police officer involved in the killing of George Floyd. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to uh, what would be the best arguments uh, on either side of uh, the debate, um, uh, including pro and against uh, uh, the guilt charge um, for second-degree murder. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you. Uh, your name is Avi. I was born uh, named Avi. I was Avi until I was uh, until I went to college. My my mother finally said, "Hey, Avi, you need a real name if you go to college." So uh, I got Alan, but all my old friends still call me Avi. So it's nice to get a call from an Avi. Uh, look, I have to see more of the facts of the case. Um, uh, the issue in the case, I think, is not going to be guilt or innocence. There doesn't seem to be any justification for putting a knee on the throat of somebody who doesn't seem to have been struggling or opposing. I think the issue is going to be whether it's going to be second-degree murder or manslaughter. There'll be some degree of homicide. And I There may even be a plea bargain. Who knows? In cases like this, we see negotiation. This would be a hard one for the prosecutors to negotiate because there's so much public interest in the case. But I have to see more of the evidence. I have to hear testimony about the state of mind of the police officers. I don't think anybody can justify seeing that videotape. I don't think anybody can justify what was done there. So the question I don't think is going to be justification. I think the question is going to be um, um, mitigation, whether or not you can mitigate it from second degree to manslaughter, whether or not there will be efforts maybe to reindict for first degree. Uh, all of these things are going to be subject to the specific facts of the case. And um, it's going to be a very, very hard case to defend because we know that the public is watching and we know if there were to be an acquittal, uh, there would be a lot of public reaction uh, to it. Um, so uh, keep a careful eye. Remember, everybody's presumed innocent, but here we have evidence, a video that seems to at least overcome the presumption of total innocence, but it doesn't give us enough information to decide the degree of culpability that the defendant might have. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. This is Connie in Bluffton, South Carolina. Uh, first of all, I love your show. I look forward to listening to it every morning, period. The question I have, or the concern, at the beginning of the podcast, you were very much in favor of Biden, thinking that he was a centrist, but According to the policies I'm seeing coming forth, it looks like he's moved far to the left. I would like to hear your comments about this. Well, thanks. And thanks for calling from South Carolina, where my uh, wife comes from. She was born in Charleston. Her mother and father lived there until their deaths. Um, and I love Charleston, South Carolina. I've been in other areas of South Carolina I love as well. All right, now let's turn to your questions about Biden. I have an open mind. Uh, I like Joe Biden. I have known him for over 40 years. Um, I was thrilled that he got the nomination, as distinguished from Elizabeth Warren, who I've known for 25 years. I could not vote for Elizabeth Warren. Um, I could not support her. Um, uh, she has become one of Israel's staunchest opponents uh, in in the Senate. She walked out. She wouldn't listen to Benjamin Netanyahu's speech. She would have listened. She would have listened to Castro, but she wouldn't listen to, to Netanyahu uh, on issues of American policy. She's been just just awful on a lot of them, and uh, I think she would uh, endanger the American economy and endanger American liberties. I haven't heard her. Uh, speak out against um, cancel culture and uh, abridgments on, on free speech. So I'm very glad that Biden got the nomination. I'm very glad that Elizabeth Warren didn't. I'm very glad that um, um, that uh, Bernie Sanders didn't. Um, is he going to be a centrist president? Um, he's 
disappointed me when he uh, pushed forward on the impeachment. I thought he would either remain silent or uh, express his opposition to that. But I'm still maintaining an open mind. Um, he, um, he just said that he thought the impeachment should go forward. Um, he was wrong, I think. Um, he's not supported court packing. He said he'll create a commission. He does have a wing of his party. Uh, it's a small wing uh, at the moment, but there is a wing of his party, the squad, uh, who would destroy America and destroy the Democratic Party. And um, I, I hope he doesn't give in to that wing. I hope he remains uh, a, a centrist. I think his appointments, cabinet appointments, have generally been very good and very centrist. Uh, State Department, uh, very centrist. Secretary, Treasury, very centrist. Attorney General, very centrist. So I think we're seeing a centrist administration, but I keep an open mind. I criticize everybody, whether I voted for them or voted against them, when I think they do something wrong. And I support anybody, whether I voted against them, if they do the right thing. So let's keep an open mind. Let's see if he can unite America. I was disappointed in his first action in supporting the impeachment. I didn't think that helped unite America. Give him a break. Give him a chance. Give him an opportunity to prove himself. Let's have an open mind. Let's all root for the current administration to succeed. I always root for whoever the president is. I want that president to succeed because I want America to succeed. And let's root for greater unification of our country. Let's emphasize what we agree to rather than what we disagree about. Thanks, Jeff from Minneapolis and can you explain the legality and the issues surrounding the, the settlements in Israel? Sure. And who lives there and who protects them? Why the Palestinians don't want them there? Uh, are they guarded by the Israeli military or the UN? Thank you. It's a great question and very relevant to the discussion today on the International Criminal Court because one of the issues the International Criminal Court will be looking into is Israeli settlements, whether they violate international law. They do not violate international law. Let's be very clear about what these settlements are. First of all, they're all subject to being uprooted as part of a deal. Israel did that in the Gaza Strip. There were between nine, ten thousand 10,000 Israelis who had lived in the Gaza Strip for 25 years their parents were buried there. Uh, they had synagogues. They had schools, cemeteries. Uh, and uh, the prime minister of Israel and the cabinet snapped a finger and said, you're out. Uh, we want to try to make peace with the Palestinians. So we're ending all settlements in the Gaza Strip. Um, that could happen in the West Bank. It won't because there are different kinds of settlements in the West Bank. Um, number one, there are settlements that really aren't settlements at all. They're simply suburbs of Jerusalem. If you go to Israel and you go to Jerusalem, you drive through Jerusalem, suddenly you're in Gilo or Male Adumim. You wouldn't even notice that you were outside of Jerusalem. It's just like going from Manhattan to, uh, to Queens. Uh, it's even closer in some ways. You don't have to go over a bridge. Um, and uh, so those will never, ever be uh, ended as part of Israel. They are part, an integral part of Israel. Uh, then there are, there are settlements a little further out. Um, let's start, for example, with the Etzion Block. The Etzion Block was part of Israel, part of the Jewish area of 
pre-Israel Israel. It was called Palestine at the time, but it was uh, that's a Roman name. But it was supposed to be part of Israel, and it was violently occupied, taken over, and I think many of its civilians murdered by uh, by uh, by Arab uh, soldiers. Uh, and and of course, when Israel recaptured that. In 1967, they immediately took it over. It was originally supposed to be theirs, and so they had the right to take it over. So the Etzion block is not occupied territory. But then there's there's other areas close to Jerusalem, but not adjoining to Jerusalem. They're close to uh, Jerusalem, and they're also close to some major um, Arab cities. And um, those will also remain part of Israel in any final deal but there'll be land swaps. And the deal that was offered by the uh, Trump administration, which I participated in, I helped to draft that, I consulted to the people who were the draftsmen, would have kept those basic Israeli areas as part of Israel subject to land swaps. It would have given a Palestinian state exactly the same number of acres, it's called dunim in Israel, the same number of dunim that we become part of Israel would be taken from Israel and become part of the Palestinian state. So there'd be an exchange of land and partly an exchange of population. Uh, the Israeli settlements today are part of Israel. The people who live there vote. They are protected by Israeli soldiers. Um, Israeli law applies. Uh, there is some question of words. Does sovereignty of Israel extend to it. That was a big debate that uh, preceded the Abraham Accords. Those will be all subject to negotiation. Look, I have sat down with Abbas. I have sat down with the late Saib Arakat, the negotiators for the Palestinian state. And I have to tell you, the disagreements aren't as great as the agreements. I think that the Palestinians do agree that these areas will remain part of Israel subject to land swaps. I think they do agree that there won't be a right of return of all Palestinians who left Israel have a right to return. I think there is agreement that there can be a symbolic Palestinian capital in Jerusalem. Obviously, Ramallah will remain the center of Palestinian political life. But the differences aren't as great as the agreements. And I would hope that now with the Emirates and Gulf states and other Sunni Arab states, normalizing relationships with Israel, that the Palestinians will finally come back to the negotiating table. They haven't been willing to sit down and negotiate. They weren't willing to negotiate with Trump. They aren't willing to negotiate with Netanyahu. They think they're going to get a stay through the International Criminal Court or through the United Nations or through the BDS, Boycott, Divestment, Sanction move, Movement, or from left-wing extremists in the American Congress. They're not going to get that. They'll only get a state if they sit down and negotiate with Israel, and the negotiation will lead to a compromise. Netanyahu has put it painful compromises on both sides. It will mean that Israel will maintain control over those areas of large settlements. It will give up control over areas of settlements that are way outside of Jerusalem. The hardest issue will be not Jerusalem. The hardest issue will be Hebron. Hebron is the center of Judaism. It's where Judaism was born. Go back and read uh, the book of Genesis, and you will see Abraham established Judaism basically in Hebron, and he and his wife are buried in Hebron. It is, it is as Jewish as the Vatican is Catholic. It is as Jewish as Mecca and Medina are, are Muslim, but Israel may have to give up sovereignty over Hebron, 
and some enclave status for the Jewish communities that live in Hebron will have to be established. These are all going to be subject to uh, negotiations. I would be privileged to participate in those negotiations. I have good relationships with the Palestinian uh, leadership. I like Abbas. He likes me. Um, we have gotten along well on the occasions that we've met. I've gotten along well with previous prime ministers of the Palestinian Authority, not Hamas, not Hezbollah. Let's take them off the table. But I'm talking about the Palestinian Authority, and uh, I would love to help out and uh, participate as I have. I've advised many uh, previous administrations with regard to Israel, and I make myself available to this administration to help. People know I'm a very close friend of Benjamin Netanyahu. I've known him for almost half a century, and um, we have a superb relationship. We talk on the phone. Every time I go to Israel, I visit with him, and um, I would be happy to help bring about peace. Um, I know I can only play a very, very small role, but whatever role I could play, I would be happy to play. So I think it's important to understand that the term occupation and settlements are loaded terms, that... Uh, uh, there's no Israel is not violating any international law with its settlements, and the International Criminal Court would be engaging in politically divisive actions if it took a position on Israeli uh, settlements. So um, let's see what the International Criminal Court does. Let's hear more calls from you. I'm happy to discuss Israel, the Middle East, uh, any of these issues. I need to know what's of interest to you, my listeners, my viewers. So. Your questions, in some ways, tell me what you're interested in. So keep the questions coming. Keep the comments coming. Tell your friends about The Der Show. Subscribe to The Der Show. And keep listening and watching. An important part of The Der Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call. 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short, and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.